This is the Registry Podcast. Welcome to the Real Perspectives Podcast, where we spotlight visionary voices in architecture and design, as well as the broader commercial real estate industry. In this episode, we are thrilled to introduce Gabrielle Bullock, a true luminary in the field. With an impressive array of accolades, Gabrielle's journey has been defined by her unwavering dedication to reshaping the landscape of architecture. Hailing from Harlem and the Bronx, she knew early on that architecture would be her life's purpose, fueled by determination to uplift marginalized communities. As principal and director of global diversity at Perkins & Will in the firm's Los Angeles office, Gabrielle has chartered an extraordinary path, catalyzing change and shattering ceilings. Having emerged as a second black female graduate from the Rhode Island School of Design's architecture department, her impact spans over three decades. Marked by iconic projects like the Ronald Reagan, UCLA Medical Center, and King Saud bin Abdulaziz University for Health Sciences. Join us as we delve into her remarkable journey of melding design and social justice, pioneering an inclusive future for all. Gabrielle, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Vlad. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's great to have you uh, join us on our podcast. Um, where do we find you today? Where are you? I am in Los Angeles. <laughs> Wonderful. Sunny Wonderful. day. <laughs> Wonderful. As as it as it should be, I suppose. Right. Uh, this time of year, we're talking here second quarter, just to sort of put a little timestamp on our conversation. I suppose. Right. Um, Gabrielle, by way of introduction, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, kind of your background in the industry and, uh, you know, a little bit of how, you know, your winding road of your career got you to where you are today? Sure. Well, originally I'm from New York, um, grew up in New York city in the Bronx in particular. Um, I went to the high school of music and art and then on to the Rhode Island school of design for architecture. Um, my interest in architecture really started with as a young, young preteen having a visceral reaction to public housing in New York and how awful and inhumane they were. As a young person, I guess that's, um, pretty, um, ironic that I could recognize that. So I wanted to become an architect to change and improve how my people, particularly um, black and brown and poor people lived in urban cities. So I went to RISD five years. Um, as a point of note, I was the second black woman to graduate from their architecture department in 1984. That's that's amazing, yeah. um, and we'll we'll go into a little bit of sort of how things have evolved. But I I always like to, you know, bring another sort of you know perspective when we talk about this. Um, and I think you probably know this better. But the, the the architecture industry across the U.S., if I'm not mistaken, is somewhere around 180, 190 thousand people. Like that, that's it, correct? That, and in that, terms that's of represent. Correct. Yeah, and and then in terms of representation, you know, where where how does it you know break up between you know minorities and and others, if you right? Well, you I know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I know the um, the smallest demographic is African Americans only represent about two percent, and Black women represent point two percent. There are only five hundred and seventy licensed Black female architects in this country, so. That has been a, a wide gap for a very long time. Um, I don't 
quite know offhand the overall demographics of the non-white licensed sure. architects in this country, but it is that is the majority. Yeah, yeah. And um, the path from sort of how you became interested in architecture and sort of your kind of personal drive to get involved in the industry to where you are today is obviously you know, not, not, not a straight line. Right. And, um, I, I imagine along the way, you know, you had to focus in a certain maybe aspect of, of the industry. Tell us a little bit about sort of, you know, that and kind of what, what did you work on, you know, early on kind of, mm -hmm. and, and how you got to Perkinson well. Right. So I, because I wanted to focus on public housing, that was my interest, uh, entering the profession post post-college. And so I worked on, worked with several firms doing public housing in New York. And that was the first recession that I experienced. And so all of those firms, which are fairly small, all went out of business because of the recession. So there wasn't an opportunity to continue with, with public housing at the time, but I knew I had to do something that had purpose meaning and impact on community. So I found myself at a firm called Russo and Saunder, which was a healthcare practice in New York, um, ultimately acquired by Perkins and Will. And so I did healthcare with Perkins and Will both on the East Coast and then moved to the West Coast in 95, largely on healthcare, higher education, um, and th those sorts of projects because there was the next best thing I could get to, to have some meaning and some purpose um, with designing for people. Yeah. And what do you do at Perkinson Well today? Ah, the question of the day. So I'm still an architect. I spend about 30% of my time working on more culturally focused projects. And the other 70%, I lead the firm's um, focus on justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion as the director of global diversity. I've had that role since 2013. And so I balance both as much as I can. I think it's important to uh, be a practicing architect as well as lead um, a focus on justice and equity. Um, I don't know that you can do it with, effectively without having that connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious, um, you know, it's interesting that you've been in that role now for, uh, sounds like a decade. Yes. Um, did you find Perkins and Will, you know, especially, you know, kind of forward thinking in, in that respect? And um, how did it help you and, and the firm also in, you know, finding projects and sort of work to, um, you know, try to deploy some of those, uh, uh, you know, thoughts? Mm-hmm. Well, the firm um, has always had an interest and a focus in being um, more diverse and inclusive. I think in 2013, when I proposed that the firm really put a stake in the ground um, with a focused effort, really came out of, you know, looking at the global work that we do all over the world with many different cultures and how cultural, how cultural competency was actually key to being success successful and designing um, appropriately for all the different cultures that would that we work with and so and clients. And so there really was no pushback. It was, you know, thank goodness, we have somebody who wants to focus on this. And so for for 10 years now, um, it's really we really tried to embed it in our culture, our people, and our work and align our clients, you know, with those values 
Um, I think that, I mean, we can talk about how that's changed since 2020. I don't know if you want to get there now. Um, You know, well, I'll back up and say that our vision was really to be this beacon of social justice and equity in everything that we do from our people, um, how we lead the profession, how we, how it shows up in our work. And up until 2020, when all hell broke loose in society, uh, we, we were steady as we go, but in 2020, it really gave us the impetus and almost the license to be even more explicit around justice, around equity, and how we can't stand by and not help fix, you know, what has happened in our profession, you know, for decades. So it really gave us a shot in the arm. And since then, you know, we're we're even more explicit in saying it's not, it's a mindset and it's not a moment. Um, I fear that many firms um, and practices, you know, in 2020, everybody had a tagline around EDI and justice. And where are we today? So I'm hopeful that, you know, it does become a mindset for the entire profession. Has it helped you guys uh, focus on certain projects? I mean, I think it's, um, you know, wonderful that the company is, you know, has changed its mindset and is sort of taking this approach that, you know, this is the right way to kind of be going going forward as, as a firm. But how does that, um, you know, exhibit itself through your work? Right. So for a firm that does everything from healthcare to higher education, science, technology, cultural and civic work, all of those client types have constituents. Um, And let's talk about the higher ed clients whose constituents are the students. And the students, as we've seen in 2020, um, and the young people were the most vocal. And they were very active in in tackling this whole thing around justice and equity. And so that has transformed into those kinds of clients wanting to um, instill a focus of JEDI on their campuses in the work that they do. So we've seen it in our master planning work around residential housing, um, residential, I mean, student spaces on campus, master plans, comprehensive plans and all of that. So it really has put us at the forefront and well positioned to help our clients, whether they're a a university, a healthcare client, or a community-based client like Destination Crenshaw, really transform their environments from the equity standpoint. Yeah. And and just as a point of clarification for our audience, JEDI is an acronym um, that, that you guys use. Yes, and we're we're not the only ones, but it's justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah. I think that um, it's important to note that when we started our focus ten years ago, it was diversity, inclusion, and engagement, and with the intent to be more explicit, right? We we decided to use that acronym. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you mentioned a couple of projects in um, uh, just a second ago that sort of uh, were part of this initiative. Tell us about them and sort of how you think they've helped transform not only you know the work but also the you know purpose with uh, with which they were uh, you know developed. 
Right. I will talk about uh, Destination Crenshaw, which is near and dear to my heart. It is in Los Angeles, South Los Angeles, and it is a community-driven project that is in response to the extension of the Metro line through through this, this district, Crenshaw District, which is, by the way, the largest black community west of the Mississippi. And it is a major commercial corridor for this community. So the community had the vision to create a destination that would um, really announce and celebrate the black community's contribution to art, culture, um, and Los Angeles as a whole by creating a series of pocket parks along this 1.3 miles um, to really highlight through storytelling, exhibit design, the architecture of the parks and the landscape, um, really the the legacy, but also a nod to the um, the future of what this community is. Um, we are currently under construction, and I think it's it, in the end, if it, it is successful, it will be a catalyzing um, um, intervention for this community. And it's not, you know, recreating the community. You know, we use place making all the time. I like to think that this is place keeping. And, yes. and we are using the, this community's voice. They are the design partner. And so we're merely interpreting the stories that they want to tell through the built environment. Yeah. Do you see um, in the future more projects like this, uh, not just for Percocet Oil in general, but just across the industry? And um, sometimes, you know, the biggest challenge uh, for, you know, for the realization of these projects is financing, right? And and how that will be funded. Um uh, what are what are some of your thoughts there, and kind of how how have you you know through this experience kind of seen that evolve? Right, I certainly think there's going to be more and more of these projects. We have gotten lots of interest around how are we doing destination Crenshaw. Um, I think that every major city is grappling with how to deal with you know homelessness, how to deal with poverty, how to deal with a broken infrastructure. Um, or inefficient infrastructure from transportation all the way down to, you know, housing. So I imagine that projects like this, um, there'll be more and more. Um, I, I think that the way that we're able to address it is, you know, we're challenging the status quo. We're not telling you what you need to do. We want to know what it is that you need in order for it to be successful. And, you know, I say it's eyes on the blocks. I, uh, eyes on the block that if you if you engage the community in designing something for them, they will take care of it. It will be prideful um, and all of that. The other point I want to make is that, um, you know, ULI has created the 10 principles of equitable development. And so I think that was a positive move toward the broader um architecture and, and real estate profession to address what is, is it is in everybody's mind. It's in every mayor's mind. It's in every major community's mind on how we are going to build an infrastructure and, and environment 
that will sustain all the things that we saw in 2020 and beyond. So I don't think it's just architects wanting to do right. I think it really is an acknowledgement that there is some work to be done to fix our social infrastructure as well as our physical infrastructure. You uh, mentioned earlier when we started the conversation and we talked a little bit about how, you know, <laughs> tiny the industry is in in some way, right? Um, th that would imply that a lot of architects probably know one another. It's sort of a close-knit community in many ways. Um, have you found, you know, that the industry it, it, just as a whole, you know, is, you know, receptive to this, is beginning to transform, Um um, how, how how has that sort of manifested itself? So I'm glad to say that the reception um, to challenging the status quo and how architecture has um, has evolved over the years has been overwhelming. Um, obviously, 2020 really helped catapult that, but even before then. So I think um, it's become... Um, a recognized, important endeavor to fix what ails us um, from the equity and the diversity um, perspective. And so I don't know of any, certainly not any major large firm that's not addressing this in some way. I do think that it is, you know, in order for it to be a sustained evolution, that we have to um, keep our eyes on the ball and it has to be deliberate and intentional from many different aspects. And um, I fear with some of the laws and, and policies being instituted across this country against EDI, against any mention of diversity or inclusion or equity. Um, and so that's a threat that I think we will continually face um, but if, as a profession, this becomes part of our ethics and just the way we should be doing business, then we have a chance to sustain the change. Yeah. Um, have you seen um, across the country, whether it's certain cities or certain regions or, you know, maybe um, maybe even certain, you know, folks that are doing development that um, have done some interesting stuff, you know, along the lines of what uh, you guys accomplished with uh, Project Crenshaw? Um, I'm curious kind of, you know, how, you know, how the industry has responded and sort of how, um, you know, some of these other projects have been sprouting throughout the country as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, I can't cite any projects from, from another firm, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk about one in our Toronto office, which is called the Dawes Library, recently presented to us in, in which the our Toronto studio engaged an indigenous architectural firm to be a design partner, recognizing that the cultural competency and the cultural understanding and connection um, for, for, for the community that you're designing for is really key. And so what, um, what I'm most proud of is that our, our firm does not just assume that we know it all and that we see the value and recognize the value and the contributions of small minority women-owned businesses and culturally um, unique firms that can help um, bring, you know, a greater design solution to the project. So 
those are the kinds of things that I think are happening yeah. across the country um, with with many firms. Um, you know, times of disruption, and by disruption, I mean economic, uh, whether it's a recession or you know the you know you know great financial you know um, you know recession that we had uh, here almost a decade ago, and then uh, the you know downturn that was initiated by you know COVID nineteen and the global pandemic and all the consequences sort of following that um it's usually a time when i feel the the industry you know l loses loses people right people leave architecture or architects don't hire as many people i imagine that means not as many people go into architecture school and so there's these sort of waves of kind of people entering entering the industry and leaving the industry as we enter kind of this new cycle you know and and you're you know, I imagine seeing younger architects enter the industry as well. Have you found their mindset to be different and, and in what ways? I have found their mindsets to be different. Um, and I'll go back to again to 2020 when most of those um, protesting were young people, right? Um, and I've noticed through portfolio reviews and, you know, visits to universities that the interest of, of, of students is about having impact, is about working with community and working on projects that represent the current challenges of society. And so I think that is an indicator that social justice, you know, the impact and, and the, you know, how, how can we be a more resilient and representative and, and culturally competent um, profession. So their voices are loud and they're coming through and it's showing up in their work. And even when they come to, you know, their first firm, uh, they really want to do good work and they want to do impactful work. And I, I would say that the shiny object, you know, going to ar architecture for the shiny object, that's still there, but I don't see it as predominant as it was when I entered the profession. Yeah, interesting. And and my follow-up question to that is, I mean, I we all learn from each other, right? Whether it's people with experience learn from people without experience and vice versa, right? We're kind of teaching e e each other what the what the sort of contemporary times are, right? I am I am curious sort of how has that informed or enabled, you know, your initiative within the firm and, you know, made maybe your job even a little bit easier sort of knowing that you have a kind of a new generation of architects coming in that are um, already equipped with, with this mindset, right? Yeah, it's a, um, it was a, um, I didn't see it coming. I thought I'd be fighting an uphill battle across all generations within our profession, but it's, um, it's, it's pleasing to see that students really care about this stuff, that, um, that they're even modeling some of their school projects around projects like Destination Cruncher or other projects in the country that are they're dealing with similar issues. So um, I think that puts us in a, in a great spot moving forward. Yeah, and do you see um, some of this change also happening around your offices? You, you mentioned the office in you know, Toronto, but I'm curious, sort of, because you are a global firm, mm -hmm. if this is you know popping up in other parts of the world also, and to and to what extent? It is popping up all over the world. I would say largely in the U.S. and Canada, um, and because we are a large firm, you know, our Jedi mission is not just 
for the U.S. It's for all of our studios. And so, and we, you know, insist and we foster a culture where our design processes, it's not, you know, Jedi is not an add-on. Sustainability is not an add-on. Design excellence is not an add-on, nor is research. And so all of those things really encompass what we consider design excellence. And um, frankly, from a metric standpoint, we evaluate our projects with with those lenses. So there is a community and inclusion lens. So I think what we're trying to do is that every project can encompass all of those, some to a greater degree. So it's and it's because it's one of the things we measure then it's part of our practice and our policy, right? If I could switch gears just a little bit, um, I am curious, um, you know, aside obviously from, you know, how social justice over the last three years have transformed, not not just the work, but the industry overall, but um, just in terms of the way we work, uh, in terms of how, you know, our relationship towards office space and commuting has evolved. Oh, <laughs> I am boy. curious, you know, as an architect, um, how do you sort of combine those two, you know, streams, number one, but also number two, you know, have, have you noticed personally, you know, has it helped evolve your work as well? Well, I would say that the hybrid working um, is a challenge, you know, a big part of fostering a culture of inclusion is for everybody to be there and to learn from each other face to face. So I think that that will, will take a hit for that overall, but I think, um, I think there might be a trend toward getting folks together in studio for some meaningful reasons, not just to go to the office. And I think that for us, we're trying to find those opportunities that make sense and that will be most impactful to to keep the community together, our community together, because otherwise we're looking at Zoom boxes, right? We're looking at, you know, the Jeopardy box or the, the Hollywood Squares box um, of people and you really can't get that interaction. So we're working hard because we do know that that will be the big, one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. But, it ha- but it hasn't stopped our, our collective interest and, um, and mission to incorporate this into everything we do. Yeah, and anecdotally, what I've sort of seen and heard is that um, the companies that have been successful with the remote kind of, you know, hybrid um, mode of work have been the ones that have created kind of purposeful reasons to connect mm-hmm. with some kind of, you know, predetermined frequency, right? Where I know a lot of people talk about kind of this, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, unplanned, unscheduled kind of, you know, bumping against one another in the hallway, you know, that kind of stuff, right? And there's some value to that. But I think um, that has been very difficult to, you know, uh, you know, qualify, right? How How is that really helpful? Whereas I think some of these, you know, more meaningful, thoughtful get get togethers do seem to um, really have an effect, right? Yeah. And I'm also curious from your clients and companies that you guys are working with if, if you're noticing that as well. Um, before I go to the clients, I just want to say one, one of the purposeful engagements that we're doing here in our LA studio is we're doing a day in the life. So once a month, we feature a principal or a senior leader in, in, the, in the practice for an hour-long conversation. 
an interview. Um, I did mine last week. And so I realized from that how little folks knew about me and how much they got from my story, particularly young women. And so um, I think um, scenarios like that will help bridge the gap with the hybrid work. Um, I think our clients uh, definitely, you know, some of them have not changed at all. You know, once the threat of the pandemic or infection was gone, they wanted you back at the meetings in person. I think largely though our clients um, are flexible, but they are eager too to see all of us at a meeting and, you know, talk about the projects face to face. So I think it's it's still a ways to go there, but um, I think they're itching more than we are. Yeah. <laughs> I think, Gabrielle, as part of your next Lunch and Learn, uh, you should make it mandatory for everybody to listen to this podcast to learn more about <laughs> it as well. I will certainly do that. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be one great way to, to accomplish some of that, right? Um, this is kind of a maybe a trite question, but I, I do like to ask it because I think it's unpredictable sometimes what, what answers you, you, might, you might get. Um, I, I would love to sort of hear from you kind of some lessons learned, things that maybe surprised you over the last few few years, and not just around social justice, but just kind of in general in terms of uh, you know how we as people, workers, uh, you know, colleagues, family members, um, you know, you know, reacted to what what sort of shifted us here uh, over the last few years, and 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 um, you know, both positive and negative things about that. Right. Well, I, overall, I'll say. Um, both from what happened in 2020 over the last three years and what we've been focusing on from a Jedi perspective, it is a marathon and not a sprint. And we're likely to get a couple of curveballs and changing minds and hearts will take a minute. Um, I think that if we can focus on how this shows up in our work and with our clients and with our colleagues, that um, if we focus on that, we'll get there. Um, I think the other lesson I learned is that you have to have leadership and very loud advocacy. Um, and it's difficult to maintain that. It was tiring. The last three years were tiring. They were exhausting. <laughs> Teaching, learning, crying, um, listening to others' stories, but I think it made us better, not only as a profession, but as a people, um, right? Because we saw all kinds of vulnerability and continue to um, today. So, but I'm hopeful. I think the direction um, embraced by the profession at large and the focus on people um, and how they're doing and, and their well-being um, can only make us better and stronger. Gabrielle, one of the reasons we started this podcast was to try to leverage the relationships we have in the industry with you know you know executives and leaders like you and um, provide an opportunity for uh, for a younger demographic, younger group of people that are entering the industry to sort of learn about you know um, your companies, your work, and sort of what motivates you and also drives you. Um, so I see this as kind of an, an 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 opportunity to kind of you know you know speak and inspire a younger generation of architects also and and others throughout the industry. Um, what would be some you know messages that you would like to convey to them? 
for the up and coming and the next gen, I would say use your voice. If, if never before you have a voice and we want to hear it, um, and don't be afraid to include your lived experience with your professional endeavors. Go to a firm, work with an organization that aligns with wh who you are. Um, I think the days of keeping your life and your professional life separate has blurred quite a bit. Um, I'm still working on that, but I think the next gen has a better handle on that because it's so, it's much more intertwined than it was when, when I was coming up. And finally, I would say, reach out to others in the industry. We are all accessible. We are so accessible like never before. And if you hear somebody speak like myself or somebody else, reach out because most professionals are more than willing to give advice and, and, and lend an ear. If uh, I could ask you one final question, <laughs> um, I would love to... Um, you know, hear what you would tell your younger self. What is some advice that you would give to, uh, you know, the Gabrielle that's sort of just entering the industry or kind of thinking about it? And, um, you know, what, 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 what would that be? Well, I was going to say one thing. Now I'm going to say what I just told, what I would tell the young people today. Because I did not, um, I would tell myself, one, you're the only one in the room today but it's not going to be forever and your mission is spot on. So keep on going. But I would add to that, take a chance, tell your story, fight for why you want to do certain things in architecture. I didn't do that. I, you know, you suffer in silence. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to be an architect. I'm going to get a great education, but my purpose and the education at the time were not aligned. So it was a bit of a struggle to, to get them to align. So I would tell myself, just go for it. Make some noise. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Uh, Gabrielle, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. Uh, be well, and uh, I look forward to connecting with you in the future again. Thank you so much, and I'm going to promote this. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.